0: Let's seek the Lord together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, the opportunity to be in this space. We know what makes this beautiful room sacred is our presence because when we are here, you are in the midst. And now we're looking for you to teach us. We're looking for this ancient sermon, the very words of Jesus, to transform us as it did its first listeners. And so... We're looking and we're listening in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we're back in Matthew chapter 7. We have only four more weeks after today to finish the Sermon on the Mount. It's been an incredibly transforming, wonderful journey together. Today, we wrap up the third section of the sermon. You may remember that in our overview, we divided the sermon into four movements. And the first was the Beatitudes, where Jesus describes the people of this culture that he refers to as the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God in the other gospels. You know, we hunger, we long for change in our culture, philosophies, political systems, psychologists, Everybody has a plan that they think will bring about that transformation, but then our human spirits, our human frailties always get in the way. No matter what the ideal is, we are less than ideal, and that's the problem. But Jesus offered a vision of a counterculture that is the one true hope, for a radically altering and transforming culture, and he called that the kingdom of God. The Sermon on the Mount is his vision of that kingdom, and he begins as so often we do when we describe a a new place, a new culture that we visited. He begins with the people, the blessed people of God, and then he moves into the life choices, the morality of those people versus merely religious people or legalistic people as we got into kingdom morality. And then we moved into kingdom living. And what we've seen in this section is Jesus focusing on three aspects of the routine of our life. The first is our spiritual pursuits. In, in the Jewish culture, there were three primary ones that rose to the top that Jesus addresses, giving, prayer, and fasting. Your list of spiritual disciplines or the things that embody your pursuit of God might be slightly different than that, but the message is still the same. Human effort, even religious effort, is dead if it's not from the heart. It's about our heart being transformed by the gospel and pursuing God earnestly in these things. Some of us do religion for show. We can do all the right things for all the wrong reasons. But then he moves on. It's not just our religious activities that God wants to lay hold of. It's also our things. <laughs> that was a rough one, wasn't it? Let's be honest. That, that's rough. When it moves from what you do here Sunday morning to where you're going to go for lunch today and what you're going to spend... And the vacation that you're planning uh, for next year or are still recovering from having gone on a few months ago? When it comes to those kind of things, does, does God actually lay claim on that? Yeah, it's all his. God owns our stuff, and we're not to worry about it. We're supposed to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And then last week, Lou moved to a third aspect of our living as citizens of the kingdom, and that's our relationships. When he talked about judging and humbly speaking to one another in love. And he talked about how that needs to be grace-saturated. And now today, we move to the final section of this chapter that we call Kingdom Living. So we're in Matthew 7, and we're going to read beginning at verse 7. I encourage you to turn there with me. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. If we were just to come into it, we might confuse this, as so many often do, as a promise that if I just ask God hard enough, if I seek hard enough, and if I just keep knocking, then my requests are going to be made by God. We do that all the time in these passages. We pull them out, and we abuse them. We misunderstand them. But we have had the blessing of working through this in context. In fact, it was in this very sermon weeks ago for us, but just moments ago for the original listeners, that Jesus said, your Heavenly Father already knows what you need before you ask. Don't worry about tomorrow. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Is Jesus now recanting on that and saying, okay, but if, if if you actually ask hard enough, then God will give you what you want? Is that really what he's saying here? Or is there something far more important? Let's see what we can learn from this. You may or may not know that the three words that Jesus uses for ask, seek, and knock are are in what we call the present imperative active form. Ask and keep asking. Thank you. Let's say this together. Ask and keep on asking. Seek and keep on seeking. Knock and keep on knocking. So in other words, this is about an ongoing practice, discipline, mentality in our life. So why is Jesus coming back to prayer at the end of a very extensive and diverse teaching on kingdom living? Because what he's reminding us is that we cannot live, we cannot do any of those things if we are not completely and constantly in communion and in submission to god but then it comes with this promise this guarantee we move to the next verse this is what it says say this with me everyone who asks and keeps on asking receives the one and keeps on seeking finds and to the one who knocks and keeps on knocking the door will be opened. He's talking about something that we are doing as a habit of our life. Therefore, what he's talking about is prayer as kingdom living. It's the same thing in the epistles where it says, pray without ceasing. Now Jesus uses three words and if you were to listen to any number of sermons on this, you might find very different interpretations of why he uses those words. One way to look at these three things, ask, seek, and knock, is to see them as categories of prayer. When I'm asking, I'm asking God for provision in my life. When I'm seeking, I'm asking God for direction in my life. And when I'm knocking, I'm asking God to allow me into his heart, into his presence. That's a very legitimate way of looking at this. There's some truth there. Another way we could look at it is progressive in terms of its persistence. Asking, seeking, knocking. I read one commentator who likened it to a child with their mother at home. When the mother is in the room with them, you just need to ask. But when the mother isn't in the room, you need to go seek need to work a little harder to go find her. And then if the mother's in the bedroom with the door closed, you need to knock. There are times when we feel so close to God that we know that our very breath is heard as prayer, the the intense of our heart. We know he's right there with us. But there are times... And we don't see God in our circumstances and we have to look a little harder for him. And, and then there are times when God seems to be behind some great wall, some locked door, and we're trapped in a situation and we don't know how we're going to bring God into it, so we knock. And here's the beautiful promise that we have as God's children in all of those circumstances. Everyone who is a child of God receives his answer. It's an incredible promise. Another way we can look at this is progressive in terms of our personal transformation. If asking is about our personal circumstances and needs, if seeking is about direction for God's purposes, and if, if knocking is about breaking into God's presence and a deeper knowledge of Christ, doesn't that sound like a spiritual journey to you? When I first come to God, I'm like a child. The metaphor in Scripture is very intentional. We have a a beautiful baby in the back today. Baby girl, right? When they're wrapped up, sometimes it's hard to tell. She's wearing pink. Even then, you don't know. How does a baby communicate its needs? Crying. Crying. All it knows is it's hungry, and it's tired, and it's uncomfortable, it's wet. Even the children of Israel, when they were first delivered from Pharaoh, were spiritual infants. They cried, I'm hungry, I'm thirsty. (laughs) And what did God do? He just fed them, gave them to drink. Later on, he expected more from them, but early on, he doesn't get mad, he doesn't judge. He just meets their needs. And when I'm young in Christ, I come to Christ very much because I'm longing. I have great needs. And so quite naturally, at first, they're at the heart of our relationship with Christ. And we look to him to provide for us, to not only forgive us, but to take care of us. So we find ourselves doing a lot of asking. But as we grow, we start learning that God already promised to take care of those things. That's not to be our focus, that's God's to focus on. We were just there a couple weeks ago in this very same sermon. We're supposed to seek something else, his kingdom and his righteousness. And so asking is about our needs, but seeking is about God's priorities, right? You get past the fear of whether God's going to provide because you see him provide in so many miraculous ways that you begin to be freed up to focus on God's priorities for you, not your perception of your needs. So you seek that from God. But then once you begin following God's priorities, serving Him, expanding the kingdom, using your resources for generosity, all these things that are part of God's plan for you, you discover in all of that activity that it is all secondary to one true supreme calling in all of our lives. And that's that we might know the heart of God intimately and personally. And so in the same way, asking for our prayer list moves to seeking God's plan. Seeking God's plan moves to hungering for God's heart and so we knock we knock, that we might enter into his chamber, as the writer of Hebrews says, the very holy of holies, and we come boldly. I think there's a a progression there as well. Does that make sense to you? And I think in all three of these ways, we can learn something from Jesus speaking about prayer as asking and keeping on asking and seeking and keeping on seeking and knocking and keeping on knocking there's always more to go and we call this the great pursuit of prayer And I just want to note a couple of things in relation to this first. Being kingdom-minded requires constant focus and diligence. I think at the heart of this is that sense of persistence. No matter how difficult the situation, no matter how close God feels, or no matter how much seems to be in the way between you and God, there needs to be a persistence in seeking Him. It is never the wrong time to seek God. When it's easy and when it's hard, we keep pursuing, even if it means beating down the gates of heaven. If we're going to be kingdom-minded, that's only possible if we are perpetually seeking God himself so that we might then seek his kingdom and his righteousness. And the second thought I have is that prayer moves from focusing on our needs to God's plan and God's presence, which we've already talked about third point. God always rewards persistent kingdom-minded prayer. Everyone who asks and keeps on asking receives. What a great comfort that is to us. But we move from this great pursuit to the illustration of the generous Father. Let's read it again. Verse 9. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those of you who ask him? Once again, Jesus uses a word we are so familiar with that we might again miss how radical it was to the first listener. Scholars have done research of the prayers of first century Judaism. And they find nowhere in any of those prayers referring to God as Father. In fact, as we've talked about in the past, the name of God was so sacred that it wasn't even spoken. When they came to the name of God, Yahweh, in Scripture, they would change it to Adonai because the name of God was so revered. Their sense of God was as someone completely other. But yet Jesus spoke about God as his Father it was this radical sense of intimacy that the Jewish people in their day were totally missing. And it's what the disciples of Jesus saw in him when he went away to pray, that he had some intimacy, some, perhaps it was a look on his face or the way they overheard him speaking to his father when he prayed, that they realized there's something there that all of the prayers I've learned as a a Hebrew man have never gotten me to with God. And so, they turned to him and they said, Lord, teach us to pray like that. And when he taught them to pray, what were the first two words in that prayer? Our Father. Our Father. In fact, Jesus closes each movement of the Sermon on the Mount taking us back to this incredible privilege and reality that as children of the kingdom of God, he's not just our king, he's our daddy. That's the word. It's Abba. It's daddy. It's not even just father in its formality. It's daddy or papa. That intimate sit-on-your-lap kind of relationship that we all hunger for. Some of us had the privilege of having growing up with our dads. Others didn't. But we all know what that would feel like, and that's what we have with heavenly daddy jesus ends each of these movements bringing us back to the priority of our father for instance at the end of the beatitudes he moves to the illustration of us being salt and light and he ends that movement by saying let your light so shine before men that they will what praise your father in heaven And then the second movement, when he talks about kingdom righteousness, how does he end that? In chapter 5, verse 48, he says, so then be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So we let our light shine so that we bring glory to our Father. We live in such a way that we model our Father. We reflect our Father and his righteousness. And now here, when he talks about kingdom living, he ends by saying, do this with complete and confident trust in your Father. He's constantly returning to this radical, revolutionary, world-shaking concept that God is not unknowable and unreachable, but in Christ we are born into his family. We are heirs with Christ. There is neither male nor female, Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free. All of us are sons and daughters. That makes prayer a family thing, right? There's an intimacy there. And then he talks about good gifts. We are to seek what our Father is happy to give us. And he says, what father, when his child asks for bread, would give him a stone, which looks sort of like bread, but of course it's useless, right? It's pointless in terms of our need. And then of course a snake is somewhat like a fish, The difference is a snake is dangerous, harmful. No parent who loves their child would, instead of giving them what they really need, what is good for them, will give them something that is completely pointless or, even worse, harmful. And then he goes on and says, if you who are evil, and that sounds terrible, but you know you are evil, look at the person next to you and say you're evil. (laughs) That was hard, wasn't it? Let me explain what that means. Because there's ISIL evil, and then there's everyday evil. Everyday evil is just about our moral brokenness. What he's saying is if you who are morally imperfect and act so often for your own good, because our moral imperfection, as Luther talked about, he talked about being turned in on ourselves, our evil is that we are selfish. We're self seeking, self protecting. And he says, if those of you that are so prone to act for your own good will still do the right thing and be generous to your children, how much more your perfectly good Heavenly Father will give you. But now think about it. What if instead of asking for bread and fish, you actually asked for a stone or a snake? What about that? You see, it's not a promise that God will give us everything we ask because the presumption is the whole Sermon on the Mount up to this point. We are God's kingdom people. We are being transformed by the gospel. We have become poor in spirit and humble and and we have become merciful and we have a hunger and a thirst for what is right. We are transformed people. And we are learning not to worry about this life and having enough we're learning to not judge each other but to be able to speak truth into one another's life because we're letting God do business in our life all of these things are presumed when Jesus says my children I gladly give them what is good because they're asking for what is good he taught us what to pray in fact he had just taught these people moments ago what the right thing is to pray our father in heaven hallowed be your name your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven often people will ask the question what's the very first request that jesus tells us to ask in the lord's prayer and very often we will say give us this day our daily bread give us right forgive us lead us deliver us those are the four requests wrong The very first request is that God's kingdom would come to earth and that his will will be done on earth, which means my life as it is in heaven. If our lives are in line to all that and you ask out of that work that God's doing, those are the good things that God's willing to give. Look with me at the book of James just quickly here. James chapter 4 I think we'll start with verse 1. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have and so you kill. You covet but you cannot get what you want and so you quarrel and fight. Now, pay attention to this. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. I can ask God for things that, from his kingdom perspective, are not the right things for us. You know what they amount to? Stones and serpents. Anything I am seeking in my life that's not consistent with the kingdom, that's what it is. It's stone or serpent. It's pointless or it's harmful. We are to seek what our Father is happy to give us, and then God's response is never useless or harmful to his children. Does that make sense to you? This isn't about some key to getting God to do what you want him to do. That it's all in bugging him to the point where he gives up and says, oh, okay. I did that one year with my parents for a Christmas gift. I really wanted that uh, vibrating football game. Everybody with white hair here is going, yeah, I remember that. (laughs) You put the little players, and then you turn it on, and it vibrated, and the players all kind of ran into each other. Man, I harped on my parents for that. I started in, like, September. Every time they came in when they were shopping, I said, is that my football game? What do you want for Christmas? Football game. What's on your list? Football game, football game, football game, football game. You know what I got for Christmas? Underwear. and a football game. So is that what he's speaking of here? If I just bug God enough, he'll give in? Of course not. The point here is not that this is some secret to getting what I want. This is about us being submitted to what God wants and in seeking hard after it, God generously giving because it is according to his will and his pleasure. And then he ends this section with this passage. We had the great pursuit, the generous Father, and now the golden rule. Verse 12, let's say it together. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. This is clearly a concluding statement, right? How do we know that? Because it begins with the word so, which I tend to do a lot too. I'll go so, and I'm, I'm concluding what I've been building up to. So there, I just did it. <laughs> So Jesus is wrapping up a point. What he's saying here actually flows out of what he just said. In fact, this is the close of the whole movement on kingdom living, that even our prayers are about our relationship with the world around us, our relationship with people around us. We are transformed for the good of others. It's those things that we are to be constantly persistent, and dutiful in seeking from God. This is how he wraps it up. In everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. This sums up the law and the prophets. Now, educated people here, studiers of philosophy, will no doubt know that this Phrase is quite similar to other phrases that you find in different religions, and in different philosophies from around the world. And some would say it's just all beg, borrowed, and stolen from somebody else. But once again, Jesus is contrasting. Remember, the whole Sermon on the Mount is a study on contrasts: kingdom of this world versus kingdom of God; citizens of this world versus citizens of the kingdom; everywhere else what we would now refer to as the golden rule. It's always in the negative. Do not do to others what you wouldn't want done to you. It's a defensive, reactionary, self-focused statement. Jesus says in God's kingdom it's just the opposite. We are proactive, actually doing for others the very thing we would like to have done to us. It's actually a contrast. It's about self-sacrifice and the way we do it is by being merciful. Remember when we learned that mercy means climbing inside another person's skin and looking at life through their eyes and then acting according to that perspective. Do you remember when we did that in the Beatitudes? That's what mercy is. Climbing inside someone's skin, looking at life through their eyes and then acting accordingly. Jesus says, when we are transformed in that way, that becomes the very modus operandi for how we treat others. We climb in their skin. We look at their circumstances. We ask ourselves, how would I want to be treated? How would I want to be listened to? And then we treat others that way. And then he goes on and says, that actually summarizes the whole law. Now what he's referring to is the whole law in relation to how we deal with people. Paul speaks about it in the book of Romans, and this will be the last thing we turn to today, but look with me in in Romans chapter 13. What Paul's about to say here is so in tune to what Jesus said that I can actually picture Paul when he was Saul, the Pharisee, actually in attendance at the Sermon on the Mount. Then he saw Jesus as a threat to his precious traditions, But when his life was transformed by grace he looks back on this greatest most generous rule for life and he brings it into his epistle verse 8. let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another for whoever loves others has fulfilled the law The commandments, you shall not commit murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other commandment there may be are summed up in this one commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. This becomes the ultimate guide in kingdom living. As we represent as citizens of the kingdom of God, we treat other people the way we want to be treated. I think there's something there for a lot of people in this room today because we treat the culture around us as something to be hated and fought. We are to be God. We are to be the love of Christ to those people. There is no room in the Christian community for those who angrily attack people It's one thing to contend with the philosophies and the standards of this world. It's another thing to call people who Christ loves and who Christ died for, who Peter says God is not willing to perish but to come to repentance. It's another thing to alienate them because of our inability to treat them the way we know we would want to be treated. And that's what I want to mark this church. I want, I want people in this city to go, man, that's a church that loves this city. That's a church that loves us. That's a church that seems to know what my heart needs and then gladly gives it to me. Father, thank you for your word. I know we covered a lot today, but I believe there's something here for each person, and I pray that you've brought it to them. Father, may we be diligent and persistent in seeking your kingdom, but more than that, may we knock and knock and knock deeper and deeper into your heart, into your presence, into the, the holiness, the, the blessed life that is found in our intimate pursuit of you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.